This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are diving into a two-part series on the fantasy series A Court of Thorns and Roses. This series has been the only thing that I've seen on my TikTok and Instagram algorithms. It has taken over my internet life and I figured why not why not give into the algorithm and talk about <laughs> these books because they are everywhere. Um, I just want to say up front there are going to be a lot of spoilers in this episode or these next two episodes. If you haven't read the books or you haven't finished the series all the way to A Court of Silver and Flames, um, it's getting spoiled. I just like absolutely cannot talk about the things I want to talk about without spoiling major, major aspects of the book. So or the book series. So if you if you don't want spoilers, stop now. Go read the collective 10,000 pages that this <laughs> this series spans and then come back and listen to this episode. Um, also, I, I know that not everyone loves these books the same way. And I want to acknowledge that I know they're not the best written and they're not necessarily like literary works of art. And so if they're not your style, that's totally okay. But these books did help me get out of a reading slump, and they've been some of the most fun books that I've read this year. Um, So I have an affinity for them because they really reignited a spark in me that I kind of was missing and have helped me get back to one of my favorite coping skills, which is reading fantasy books. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I know, I know the critiques, I know the criticism, and I agree with a lot of them. Um, And sometimes girls just want to have fun and talk about their fairy fantasy books. Uh, Just also a brief content warning, I will talk about suicidality and some maladaptive coping skills like alcohol and risky sexual behavior. So if those aren't your thing, just know that they're coming up. Uh, This is part one. I decided to split this into two parts because first of all, I have a lot to say. (laughs) And second of all, um, I think it behooves me to talk about the three sisters who are kind of the main characters of the series to talk about them first on their own. Um, because as characters, they represent a lot of important topics that I want to talk about. Um, and I also think that one of the things that's unique about these series is the complexity of the female characters and how they, they really are the, they're the main characters of their books. Um, not necessarily like the men in their books. So I want to honor that by making them the main characters of this podcast. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk more about these kind of overarching themes and especially a lot of the feminist themes that I picked up in the books um, and talk about the relationships. If you know, you know, there's some relationship dynamics that are not so hot (laughs) in this series. Uh, And I want to talk about them, talk about the kind of compare and contrast, the negative relationships with the positive relationships. 
Um, so yeah, so I'm going to save that for part two. That will be coming out next week. So without further ado, we're going to dive into part one. And we're of course going to start by talking about Feyre. Feyre Artron is our main character for the first three and a half books of the series. The last book in the series is Nesta is the main character. And don't you worry, we're going to be talking about Nesta. Um, Feyre is the first main character that we are introduced to and we follow her story through the majority of the books. Um, the first time that we're introduced to Feyre, she is 19 years old. She lives in what could only be described as a shack with her father and her two sisters. And we are told that she is the youngest sister, but she seems to be the one who is taking care of everyone. So they're they're, they live in poverty, and Feyre is the one who gets them food, she hunts for them, and she also does a lot of managing of the relationships in the family, because her sisters, particularly her sister Nesta, have a very tense relationship with their father, because their father plunged them into the abject poverty that they're living in. So Feyre is kind of managing everything. She's really on the go in the first book, and she she's just she's kind of never not in an adrenaline rush even when she gets taken to like the fey lands and the rest of the book that as it uncovers she's just constantly in high stressful situations then when we see Feyre in book two a lot of the stressful situations in her life have calmed down or are not progressing as fast as they were in book one and that's when we start to see Feyre having her trauma responses in book one, Feyre is just trying to kind of meet the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? She's like, I'm just trying to make sure I can eat and have a place to live and be safe. And in book two, those things have been established. She is living in Tamlin's court and moving forward with the process of marrying him and becoming his, well, she doesn't get to be the queen of his court, but being, you know, basically like this kind of royal consort where she's not expected to hunt, she's not expected to provide for anything, she's actually expected to stay on her butt in the castle and not interact with anyone. And once she gets to that point, we start to see that uh, Feyre's not doing so hot. She hasn't dealt with what happened to her in book one and in the kind of peace and quiet of book two, at the beginning of book two, she starts to flip out a little bit. And I actually find this really interesting because it maps onto some theories that we have in the field about understanding trauma responses and that trauma responses typically do not come out when we're in the trauma situation. They come out when we are out of the trauma situation. And there's this very interesting model that was um, created by Figley and McCubbin out of their book, um, Catastrophes and Overview of Family Reaction. This was, this book was written in the eighties, but it still is like a very interesting theory. Um, to think about. And I won't go into the dreaded detail of describing their model to you, but the kind of thesis statement is that the traditional way, or not traditional way, but the most common way that people or families tend to deal with trauma or stressful situations is through a denial or numbing response. And this keeps us in the cycle. We deny that the stress is happening to us, which leads us to make choices that keep us in the stressful situation. So for example, in a family, this might look like uh, maybe one of the parents is struggling with an alcohol use problem, and rather than attempting to deal with it, other members of the family 
are in denial. They pretend that it's not happening or they numb themselves to the consequences of it, which then leads to them making decisions that enables that parent to keep drinking or to drink more or escalate their behavior. That's that's typically, that can happen a lot in families or in couples or even in ourselves. We have these kind of numbing cycles until we are out of the stressful situation. So Figley and McRubbin say that this keeps us in the cycle until we are in some sort of relative safety. So maybe the parent with the alcohol issue moves out and the house kind of can settle and become a safe environment. When we get into that safe environment, that is when a potential secondary triggering event can happen, which leads to kind of a re-up of the trauma cycle. This kind of safety to triggering event is typically when people start presenting with symptoms of things like PTSD or in very long-term complicated trauma, complex PTSD, or even borderline personality disorder. So the trauma responses that we see don't come out while we're in the trauma because we are actively denying or numbing ourselves to what's going on. Figley and McGrubbin acknowledge that when someone is having a flight response or if that's kind of the way that they tend to react to trauma, they might actually move into healing faster because they flee from the traumatic situation or the stressor. Um, but that is not as common. In other words, if we kind of look at the model, what Figley and McRubbin are saying is that traumatized people often seem healthier or like they're doing better when they're going through the trauma and when they come to a more stable or secure environment, that's when the trouble starts to come and they start to look unhealthy. Feyre is a great example of this, that she seems like she's doing fine, especially at the end of book one. She's like, go, go, go. I'll accept your marriage proposal. Like, what are the next steps? And then in book two, she's falling apart. And she has like pretty classic examples or symptoms of PTSD. She's having flashbacks of what she had to do uh, under the mountain with Amarantha. She's not finding interest or pleasure in her preferred activities. She stops painting. Oh, the painting. <laughs> she can't do it anymore. Uh, she doesn't, she does also doesn't find pleasure in things like food or her partner. And she's also incredibly indecisive in this period of her life. She's not able to make decisions partly because she's just not interested enough. The kind of big plot point is she's supposed to be planning for a wedding and she's just not interested enough in the wedding to plan for it. Um, and she also feels like she doesn't deserve to have nice things because of what she's done. Um, and if you haven't read the books or aren't going to, basically what happens at the end of the first book is Feyre enters into a series of trials to save the Fey people because now she's aligned with them because she ended up in the Fey world and away from her human family. And the last trial that she goes through, she has to kill um, two Fey. She has to stab them in the heart. And the third one is Tamlin, her partner, who has been cursed to have a heart of stone. So when she stabs him in the heart, it doesn't kill him. Um, but it's still part of the trial. So she does have to kill two innocent people and pretty, you know, mortally wound her partner. And so these are the flashbacks that she's having. She can't see anything red because it reminds her of the blood that she spilled. Um, she feels like anytime she interacts with Faye that they are judging her or upset with her. But she also, at the end of book one, she's become a Faye. She gets turned, she dies and gets brought back to life and has these like new powers imbued in her. So not only does she 
you know, she hasn't been able to reckon with what happened to her under the mountain. She also has an, a new identity that she is adapting to. So at the end of book one, Pharaoh seems to be doing okay, right? She seems to be rolling right along with it. She hooks up with Tamlin after they get out of the mountain and they're, they're, they seem ready to go. But then we start book two and we see, oh, Feyre is, she's out of the trouble. And so now she's having the symptoms and that happens very frequently. Um, we, so much so that we even have a, um, specifier when we diagnose PTSD, that's called delayed expression, which means we don't see the symptoms occur for up to six months after the trauma or more than six months after the trauma has happened. So it's, it's incredibly common for someone who to go through a traumatic event like a car accident or a natural disaster or a mass shooting and to almost feel like to feel that numbness, that denial reaction. And then all of a sudden when they are in a more like relatively stable situation to feel kind of all of it coming coming home to roost, right? All of that trauma response kind of hitting at them. So that's where we find Feyre in book two. She um, is actively being blocked from her preferred coping skills. So what she wants, what she thinks that she needs or feels that she needs is she needs to learn how to use her new magic powers and she needs to learn how to fight because what has happened in the first book is she was incredibly vulnerable as the human girl in this fey world and now she's more on their level and she feels like, well, now I can take care of myself. I've proven that I could take care of myself as a human girl with my limitations. Now as a fey woman, like, let's let's see what I can do. And she wants to feel the security of that she could protect herself and the people that she loves if she needs to. And having, you know, Tamlin snatched by Amarantha can't happen again because Pharaoh would be able to protect him. So this is something that she has identified for herself that this would make her feel more secure. This would make her feel better and might help her process what has happened to her. Unfortunately, her partner at the time continues to block her from that activity by saying it would be dangerous and someone might want to kidnap her because of the powers that she has. So she doesn't have access to her preferred coping skill, which would be like learning to use her body to defend herself. And she's not interested in her prior preferred coping skills, painting, because, well, of everything that's happened. But she mostly feels like she just doesn't feel connected to that creative spirit anymore that's kind of been taken from her after what she has gone through. I really enjoyed that Sarah J Moss put this as a kind of character arc for Feyre because again, this is something that's incredibly common for people who have gone through trauma or people who are just struggling with their mental health in general. Not being able to find pleasure in activities that you used to like is called anhedonia. It's actually a symptom of most depressive and mood disorders that we look for when we're trying to figure out what's going on with someone. Feyre is experiencing anhedonia to the highest limit. She's not interested in doing anything. She can't find the motivation to do things that she used to like to do. And she's also racked with a guilt about enjoying things that she used to like to do. And this is super common. This is very common with trauma. It's also really common with depression. It can be a warning sign that things might be getting worse. So as always, I would recommend that you reach out to a mental health professional if you're experiencing this. There's a big difference between, oh, I'm just not into painting anymore. I'm into something else. There's a difference between that and I'm not into painting and I can't fathom the idea of doing anything else or enjoying anything else and anything that I try 
is dull and boring and painful for me to do. That's that's a big warning sign and a big red flag. And I would encourage you to check in with someone um, who can help you out if you're experiencing that yourself. So Feyre is anhedonic. She's depressed. She's incredibly guilty. She's traumatized. And her partner is closing the cage around her. He's refusing to let her go out and do things. He's refusing to let her accompany him um, as he like surveys the people of his land. And we'll talk about this relationship dynamic more in part two. But the direct result of her feeling trapped and not having access to her coping skills leads to the ultimate freeze response. I This is what I'm calling it. There's a scene in the second book where Feyre finds out that Tamlin has now magically trapped her in the castle. He's created this shield that doesn't let her leave. And she curls up in a ball on the ground and her magic starts to like wig out and creates this like shroud of darkness around her. It melts the engagement ring right off of her finger and she can't control it. She's like weeping and wailing and flipping out and her magic is flipping out. And it's not a good situation, but that is fortunately when Morrigan and Reese come to save her and kind of set her on a different path. But I, I again thought this was interesting that Feyre is not typically a freeze response girly, right? If we think about like fight, flight, freeze, fawn, all of all the Fs, all the trauma responses, Feyre's never really been a freeze person. She's definitely more of a fight sometimes flight if it needs to be but she her kind of default is to fight which is why she wants to learn how to fight the fact that she has been so restricted from accessing things that would support her and would help her to do better has led her to have a different trauma response than that is like normal for her nervous system or like her go-to um so i think this just really shows the kind of depths of darkness that someone can go into when they don't have access to things to help them feel better or coping skills to help them process what's going on with them. Um, and we realized through the, through book two, which is kind of Feyre's healing journey, that when she has access to things that she thinks will help her, like fighting and learning how to use her powers and feeling like she has autonomy and control, she starts to recover and she starts to realize how bad she was when she was with Tamlin, when she has some space from it. So I really love the way that, that Moss writes this and the kind of arc that Feyre goes on to learn about herself and that although, yes, she is rescued by Resand, her, <laughs> her new lover, um, really the thing that saves her is her and her being able to kind of practice the things that she wanted to practice and take on this like agency of herself and her choices and realize that she made certain choices under the mountain because she didn't have any access to choice. She made choices the best that she could based on the situation that she was in. And she's able to not, not like rationalize away. Like she still understands that she did kill two people, but understand like, I killed two people to save an entire land of people and, like, really believed that. So her guilt, her hopelessness, it starts to shed. So Vera has, like, a really beautiful arc. And I really I really love that her arc is that she went from being someone who basically, like, has PTSD to recovering and integrating the traumatic experience into her sense of herself. Vera now understands by the end of, like, book four or five or whatever, 
she understands that what she went through under the mountain has changed her. I mean, like physically, because now she's a magic woman, (laughs) but also like emotionally and mentally and even in terms of her identity, she's been changed by what she did under the mountain. And that's okay. It, there's like a there's like a process she has to go through of grieving who Feyre was as a mortal and before she had to do those things under the mountain. Um, but she's able to grieve them and then integrate them into herself and kind of step into herself. And I think that that is really a beautiful example of what like clinicians or therapists want for our clients who have been traumatized. We know that when you come to therapy, we're not going to make the fact that the trauma happened to you or the stress that happened to you happened, right? We can't just like magic wand that out of your brain and body and and not have any consequences, right? So we know that you're going to have to live with the fact that this thing happened to you for the rest of your life. But what we can help you do is figure out how does that fit into your life? How do you want to make sense of it? What lessons, if any, need to be carried forward? What aspects need to be accepted? What forgiveness of yourself needs to be done? Like, that is a complicated ball of yarn. And having a mental health professional walk alongside you as you make those decisions is, again, something I highly recommend. Um, But I, I think that this happens a lot when people want help for PTSD or having a very traumatic childhood there's this hope that you'll take this thing away from me. And I'm unfortunately, I can't, right? No mental health professional can do that for you, can take it away. But we can help you kind of figure out, so what now? What do I want to do with my life? And Feyre is a beautiful example of this. She truly steps into her power and her identity, and she steps into a relationship where she is an equal, and she is cared for because of her power, not in spite of it. Um, And she has an incredibly different life after her trauma than she had before. And she is able to love the life that she has after her trauma. So Vera, queen of recovery, (laughs) queen of taking care of herself. Um, She also, I'm assuming, is probably Sarah Moss's like self-insert character. So I hope that Sarah J. Moss had this like experience for herself and had this like, uh, you know, post-traumatic growth. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Feyre can be a really beautiful example of we can go through these traumatic events and they change us and, and we can accept and grieve at the same time the things that have happened to us. Okay, we're going to take a quick little break and when we get back, we're going to talk about Elaine and Nesta. And we're back. Let's jump into Elaine. Now, Elaine is the character that we know the least about. And I believe the fandom is hoping that she's going to get a book where she's the main character coming soon. But until then, we don't have as much information to go off of. But we can look at how Elaine was described before she went into the cauldron versus after she went into the cauldron. So pre-cauldron, Elaine is described as being pure, happy. She's like the most gentle sister. Nesta and Thera are are a lot more fiery, whereas Elaine is kind of like the sunflower child of the family. Um, She's always interested in helping others and wanting her family to kind of get along with each other. So whereas Thera kind of would play referee between Nesta and her father, Elaine was... um, 
Well, I guess she was in denial. I think Elaine was very much in denial about their situation. But taking the approach of like, if we just ignore it and we all get along, things will be okay. Post-Cauldron, especially in the events of book three and a little bit, there's like a half book that falls in between three and four. Uh, Elaine is silent. She's unresponsive. She spends a lot of the book in a kind of fugue state where she doesn't speak to others and she doesn't, they're not even sure if she's like aware of where she is. Um, and the thing that pulls Elaine out of this fugue state, and this is, an, this is a type of trauma response. We would probably clinically say that Elaine is disassociating, um, probably a combo of derealizing and depersonalizing where she feels unattached from her body and feels like the world that she is in is in is like a simulation or isn't real which makes sense because she went from being a human girl with a simple life and a fiance to literally being a powerful fairy (laughs) and immortal so she's she probably does feel like her world is not real anymore but elaine is in like a disassociative fugue for Uh, a big portion of the book. Um, But the thing that pulls her out of her kind of disassociating and her, her lack of responding is cooking. And that's kind of her preferred coping skill. Um, She starts cooking with the two wraiths that are kind of like the servants of the, the fairy family that she lives with. Well, I guess Feyre's new family. Um, And they, because I think because they are so silent, Elaine feels comfortable around them. Everyone else is constantly talking at her, but the wraiths allow her to just be and not have to like perform or fit in into a social situation. And so through kind of their stoic presence, Elaine is able to make contact with her preferred coping skill, which is cooking. And I think that this is a really interesting coping skill because it is physical. Moss tends to have her characters take on physical coping skills like fighting or dancing um, or creative in some way like painting or playing the piano. Um, So Elaine's is cooking which is on one hand physical because you are moving your body around. It may not be that much but you know I'm sure in this like fey world where there's not a lot of technology like she's got to stir some heavy dough you know she's got to lift like a turkey out of the oven like she is moving her body around and it's creative she's getting to like make up recipes and experiment with things and kind of flex this creative side of her that had kind of gone untouched and we also learn that Elaine loves gardening and that's been a a coping skill for her in the past but similar to Feyre Elaine feels very disconnected with gardening or disconnected from gardening until um, farther along down her recovery Um, an aspect of Elaine that I find interesting that I think that Moss will probably explore in future books is that Elaine avoids any references to her newfound immortality and her newfound powers. Um, There is an element of resistance to accepting that if she has to accept who she is now, that she's an immortal fae, then that means she has to accept what has been done to her, which was being kidnapped and thrown into the cauldron. Which of course makes me think of one of the more difficult DBT skills, radical acceptance. And I think that Elaine would really benefit from a little bit of radical acceptance in her life. And if you've never gone through DBT or you're not familiar with the concept, 
Radical acceptance is the idea of truly accepting reality with all of your being, with your mind, your heart, your body, and allowing yourself to experience reality as it is in the present moment. That's what makes it more radical. Acceptance in is just generally like acknowledging and recognizing that things are true and that facts are facts and letting go of fighting against reality. But radical is doing that with every part of your being. And Elaine is by ignoring the fact that she's immortal or has certain certain powers, she is trying to ignore her reality and ignore the fact that things have changed. And when we ignore reality, we can make our problems worse, right? Does it solve Elaine's problems to pretend that she's not Faye? No, because, and we even see this in the books, she tries to have an interaction with the human man that she was engaged to, and she just tries to pretend that nothing is different and she's not Faye, and he immediately knows because they have, like, different ears and, like, a different face. He immediately knows and, like, freaks out and throws, uh, calls off their engagement, and Elaine is not prepared to cope with that because she didn't accept that that could be... She didn't accept that she was a fae, which didn't allow her to prepare for the fact that he would have a negative reaction to her being fae because he vehemently hates the fae. So radical acceptance is about, you know, not just in our minds accepting something because how many of us have been in situations where we say, yeah, 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 no, I get that that's what's happening. But in your heart, you really want to believe it's going to go the other way, right? Like maybe you cognitively have accepted that you didn't get the promotion, but a part of you is like... I think I'm going to get the promotion. <laughs> and it's like, nope. The reality is that someone else got the promotion and it got you got passed over, but there's a part of you that still wants to like hold on to the what if or the 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 maybe rather than saying, "Okay, I didn't get the promotion at this time and I I'm accepting that and let me move on to prepare to get the promotion next time or to leave my job because they don't accept and appreciate what I do here." Right? So radical acceptance is really important for being able to deal with like the problems that are in front of you. And as as long as Elaine ignores or tries to ignore her immortality and her magic powers, the more problems that it's going to generate because she's not able to deal with her new reality. And so it's kind of it's kind, we're kind of like on a cliffhanger <laughs> with Elaine because we we don't know that much about her and that's what I'm hoping um, will be addressed in like the new book. Um, but she's at, she's kind of at a crossroads where she can accept that she's fey and immortal and has these odd magic powers and then kind of like cope with that moving forward. Or she can continue to struggle against them and pretend that nothing has changed and pretend that her reality hasn't changed and just make more problems with herself. So Elaine still has a lot of growth to do. Uh, in, in the series, but I also think that she is a realistic portrayal of how people deal with trauma. There are some people that stay in the denial. They stay in the, you know, in the figly cycle of this isn't happening and I'm going to numb myself to it. That doesn't mean that you're not impacted by it just because you've numbed yourself to it. Things are still going on. Life is still moving forward. And so radical acceptance is a way to be like, okay, life is moving forward. I have to accept that and figure out what I'm going to do now with the reality that I live in at this time. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with Elaine. But I thought that was a nice way for me to slide in 
a, a classy little DBT skill and concept, um, which of course is from Marsha Linehan, and I've cited her two main books uh, on the sources page if you want to do any additional reading on that, um, but that's where I would start if you want to learn more about DBT. Um, okay, last but certainly not least is Nesta, and I have so much to say about Nesta. Nesta is the reason that I'm even doing this episode. Um, and most of what I'm going to be talking about is from the last book, The Court of Silver Flames, because that truly is Nesta's book. She she is the main character and we get to focus on her for the majority of that book. Nesta is probably the most unlikable main character in the entire series. And I um, I'm not making that up. That is like <laughs> the opinion of the internet. And I think that Nesta is very BPD coded, which I will talk about the way that I think she meets the symptoms and how um, how that kind of plays out for her. I do want to give my disclaimer up top if you've never heard me talk about this on other episodes, but my conceptualization of borderline personality disorder is that it is essentially a combination of like disorganized attachment so a disorder of, of of secure attachment as well as uh, a, a way that complex PTSD can present so when I talk about BPD I'm not talking about it in that very like stigmatized way that you may have encountered it um, or being like you know these are people who can never be helped or this is like a disorder that I'd never go near. Um, I love <laughs> I love working with people with BPD. And I, I say that like truly, sincerely. I, it is a fascinating disorder. And I think conceptualizing it as a trauma disorder makes it a lot easier to treat. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm never one to say that like any mental health condition has like a cure and you'll never deal with it again. Um, but I think that there are a lot of wonderful modalities out there to tr- to work with borderline personality disorder and help people live a life where they are managing their symptoms rather than than being beholden to them. Um, so I don't think it's a death sentence. I don't think it is. I, it needs to be as stigmatized as it is. And I think that people who meet the criteria are people who are incredibly, incredibly hurting. Um, and I also understand that like with Nesta being characters that are like BPD coded can be incredibly unlikable. And so it can be hard to like have that sympathy, um, which contributes to the stigmatization. So I don't think Nesta is like the perfect character, but I do think that what Moss does with her story arc does have this message of hope that like you can recover. You can feel like you were the worst person in the world and you can recover. And so that is what I would like for us to take away from Nesta. Um, but I do just, I just like make to make this disclaimer up top that like I as a professional, as a mental health professional, do not see BPD in the way that it has been stigmatized as. And I do think it's still important to talk about and talk about the fact that like can, you can recover. There can be recovery from this disorder. So Nesta, um, Oh, sweet Nesta. She, she's kind of always had a tough life. We learn that um, Nesta is the oldest daughter and she had a very interesting relationship with their mother. So Feyre, Elaine, and Nesta's mother died when Feyre was pretty young. So Nesta had the kind of longest and most close relationship with their mother, um, but it was an odd relationship. We learned that Nesta 
was told by her mother, like, you know, that basically you are superior to everyone. You need to act like you're superior to everyone. You're destined for like these great things. And she really raised Nesta to be kind of this like standoffish, um, gosh, I don't want to like be stigmatizing to Nesta, but like her mother kind of raised in her and tried to instill in her this sense like she is better than everyone. The conflict for Nesta comes, though, that although her mother gave her this message, Nesta has never like truly believed that about herself. She doesn't believe that she's better than anyone else, but that is the language that she has to lash out at people. So there's often a lot of conflict between the way that Nesta reacts to people and the things she says to them versus the things that she thinks about herself. And just spending 30 seconds in Nesta's head is a tough time because she's very down on herself. She is able to say like the most cutting things to herself. And she often believes that everything she does is like disgusting. And every thought that she has is horrible. And just this really like intense, like negative self image that Nesta has. Um, And we see that she's had this for a while, but it gets even worse as the events of the book go on. Um, Nessa had the same experience as Elaine where she was dumped into the cauldron by the king of Highburn, but her experience in the cauldron was more intense um, because she did go in after Elaine and her intention in going into the cauldron was to, to die. She thought that she would rather it kill her than for her to like go on living and she wanted to damage it in some way uh, as she went out. Um, as like retribution for Elaine going into the cauldron. And so we learned that because she went into the cauldron with this like intention and this anger, she takes some of the cauldron's power with her and she survives obviously because there's (laughs) so many more books that she's in. She survives, but she ends up taking this power from the cauldron um, that is like not quite fey and it just serves to further separate her from the other characters in the book. Um, and she goes through a similar thing with as Elaine, where she kind of like refuses to acknowledge her power, refuses to acknowledge that this thing has happened. Um, and one of the final pieces of kind of her healing at the end of her book is making contact with her power and acknowledging that it is a part of her um, and no longer like running or ignoring it. So she's doing radical acceptance. <laughs> she, there's, a, there's a blueprint for it. Um, but so she... She has gone through some of the same things as Elaine, but they have impacted her in a different way. And so she is having a harder time dealing with them. Nessa's coping skills are also much more harmful to herself um, than Feyre and Elaine's coping skills are, right? Feyre's is fighting and painting, but it's not like you know street brawls, like it's training to fight. Uh, Elaine's is cooking and gardening. And Nessa's coping skills are binge drinking and risky sex. Nesta actively cuts herself off from any healthy coping skills. We learn about her that she loves dancing, but she doesn't allow herself to um, dance in the way that she did before. She she listens to music, but she doesn't allow herself to to like be taken over by it as, as she used to. And she like rejects the training for as long as possible. So in the world of the book, Vera uh, and Elaine make contact with their preferred coping skills and with things that work for them much sooner. And Nesta spends, I I believe it's like over a year in this cycle of like binge drinking, hooking up with people at bars, feeling incredible, like disgust for herself the next day, and then continuing to drink 
and have risky sex to try to cope with how horrible she feels about herself. Um, So she is like going further and further into her trauma and her despair, whereas her sisters are kind of like clawing themselves out and moving more toward a place of like recovery and growth. And so the chasm between them continues to widen. And that's part of what makes, I think, Nesta such an unlikable character is we've we as the reader have spent so much time with Feyre and have seen Feyre grow and, you know, maybe feel connected to Feyre or, you know, feel more aligned with her because of the growth that she's had. Um, And Nesta is like, Nesta can't cope with Feyre doing well. Like Nesta really cannot cope with it. And so is constantly trying to tear down her sister and hit her in her most vulnerable places. And that makes Nesta just more and more unlikable because we've spent three and a half books of Thera and now we're supposed to spend time with her sister who hates her. But we know from the internal monologue that Nesta doesn't hate Thera. She just like doesn't understand her. She doesn't understand how Thera is able to like move forward. And Nesta feels more horror and disgust toward herself. And that's why she continues to lash out. So, In addition to her poor coping skills, we know that Nesta has these thoughts that she doesn't deserve anything better. Um, She has this like uh, instability in her sense of self. She like doesn't know who she is, both as like a fae person with these new powers and she like doesn't fit into the group of friends that Feyre and Elaine are in. There's just this idea that like Nesta doesn't know who she is and can't make sense of what she's supposed to do now. Um, She has her poor coping skills are also a type of impulsivity. So she does a lot of reckless drinking, reckless um, sex. She doesn't seem to have a lot of like care for her own being and body. Um, And she also has this kind of like latent suicidality, which we learn about later on that there's been several situations throughout in the events of the book where she was ready to die and kind of put herself in a situation where she would be killed um, and like didn't didn't take the actions to protect herself but took the actions that like maybe would have killed her. So I would describe that as a, a form of like latent suicidality um, and a very like pervasive suicidality where she does not see a value in her own life. Um, she also has a a lot of like mood reactivity so she'll get really upset or she'll get really depressed um anger comes very quickly she has difficulty controlling her temper especially toward the beginning of her book um and then these like chronic feelings of emptiness of just like feeling like nothing um and often then reaching for things like alcohol to fill that emptiness because she can't tolerate it All of those things are symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And, you know, I'm not a, (laughs) I'm not her therapist. I don't think they have therapists in uh, Prithian. But I I do think that whether Moss did this intentionally or not, she does have Nesta map onto this, these like behaviors and symptoms um, that are very common in borderline personality disorder and also very common in complex PTSD. If you've ever read Judith Herman's book, she talks a lot about how trauma can, complex trauma or chronic exposure to trauma can result in not just symptoms of of like traditional or simple PTSD, but can result in these symptoms that impact relationships. So almost like an 
interpersonal functioning difficulty because of trauma. And Nesta has that. Nesta has pushed everyone away from her. That's part of like her romance plot with Cassian is like she won't let him in, but then she will, but then in, only in some ways. And they they really go back and forth in their relationship. Um, but she also pushes away her sisters and she pushes away um, the priestesses and the library and she pushes away the rest of the night court and everyone that she encounters, she pushes away, pushes away. Um, or if they refuse to leave her alone, which many of the characters in the book do, she lashes out or does things to make their relationship untenable and she's trying to drive other people away and that is when I when I looked at Nesta like that and looked at like the amount of pain that she is in that she's trying to hold people at an arm's length to prevent them from being hurt by her because she thinks that she's such a horrible terrible disgusting awful person that if someone gets close to her they will get hurt more than if she lashes out and keeps them at arm's length and that helped me to connect with Nesta more and to, I think, understand her character more. And truly, Nesta goes through a transformation. Another, this is another example of a Moss character that deals with their trauma through physical activity. And Nesta ends up training with Cassian and Azriel to learn how to fight. She doesn't train her power. She's not interested in that, but she does train her physical body. um, And she invites other women who have been traumatized, including a priestess who was sexually assaulted and an Illyrian woman who has been berated and assaulted by her family almost her whole life. She invites them into this and it's it's the combination of using her physical body to process the trauma and process what has been done to her and developing a very like stable, beautiful community of people that understand her. And once she is able to kind of build these relationships with these women that get her because they've gone through something similar to what she's gone through and they understand the reaction that she's having. Like her sisters aren't able to understand her, but um, the priestess and the Illyrian woman are, I'm so sorry, I don't remember their names. I should, I should know them, but I don't remember them. Um, but those, those women have enough distance from her because they're not her sisters that they're able to look at her and say, hey, we understand why you do what you do and we're here for you when you're ready to do something different whereas her sisters are they're too close and they want the old nesta back but her her valkyrie sisters they they don't know the old nesta they only know the nesta in front of them and they see the light in her and like want to help her make contact with that and i i think that truly the love between nesta and those two women are the love story of the book i know that nesta and cassian have their own thing but the kind of bond that she develops with her basically like sisters in arms is so beautiful and truly the like linchpin in how Nesta recovers having these people understand her and go through these like trials and tribulations with her so what I can say is kind of in summary is that obviously in Prithian there aren't therapists <laughs> there are almost no mental health professionals but the way that these these characters are dealing with their trauma is through um, accessing parts of them that make them feel alive and make them feel safe and make them feel like they have some control 
And I'm going to talk about more, I'm going to talk about the theme of control more in the second episode, but I think that this is a nice like bridge to part two of just thinking about this idea that when we've gone through something traumatic, very often our agency was ripped from us. Something happened to us, someone assaulted us or violated us in a, in some way, our agency was taken away. And often a big piece of recovering from trauma is finding those ways to take agency over what you can take agency over and radically accepting what is out of our control. Trauma can make us want to lock down and try to control everything in our lives to prevent it from happening again or can make us feel like we're so wildly out of control so we might as well lean into that feeling, kind of like Nesta. Um, and that's not true. Right? We're, we're neither completely out of control nor completely in control. And we can kind of hold that dialectic for my DBT heads. We can hold that dialectic while we go through recovery. So each of the sisters, I think, represent different types of trauma responses. We definitely have a fight in uh, Feyre. We have a disassociator in Elaine. And we have a complex trauma responser in Nesta. Um, but each of the girls or the women get an opportunity to find what works for them. And it's not a cookie cutter recipe. It's not the same thing for each of them, but they each have to figure out what works for them. So my hope is in the new book, we'll get to see more about how Elaine um, is working through her stuff. Although I think some people think maybe Elaine is going to turn into a bad guy. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that you can tell that I love these books and love these characters. Um, and that if you love them as much as I do, that you were able to get some incredible things out of this story as well. And I'll see everyone in part two to talk more about the relationship dynamics and some of the feminist themes. But as always, thank you for listening all the way through to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.